Right, human beings, you probably clicked onto this because you're a human being. Human beings are fueled by hope. We've said that sort of thing plenty of times before. That's nothing, no surprise to you. Hope is the possibility of something better. Hope is the view of the future. Hope is something that you haven't got at the moment, but it's an aspiration for something that you will have in the future. Without hope, it's very difficult to get out of bed in the morning. You can go on mere duty for a little while, but then what you do is you either find you put your hope in your mere duty, or you have to find something else to put your hope in. Hope is the thing that fuels us in our soul and our person. But what points in life demonstrate to us what we put our hope in? And there's lots of different ways in which that can be demonstrated, but one of the key things is, uh, well, you'll see what a person hopes in, looks to, longs for, by what they're thankful for when they get. Okay, do you understand that? You want to know what people set their hope on, and by the way, there's a question about that to use with your mates, uh, who aren't yet believers. If you want to know what people hope for, look for what they are thankful of. What brings a person greatest joy? Now, this, this text here is full of joy. It's absolutely shocking, really. It's, it's a bit of a mismatch here. Because you'd have thought the people, as we learned last week, the people who Peter is writing to are a marginalised, ostracised bunch of believers. They are being pushed to the margins, they are being treated badly in life because of the fact they're standing for Jesus. Some of them are getting abused, some of them are getting disadvantaged in the workplace, some of them are having grief in their marriages because they stand for Jesus. And so this is why it's shocking, is that it would be easy for them to be not hopeful, but hope less. Easy for them to be hopeless, and yet here's Peter knowing their situation and sharing in it, because he has the same worries and same problems, he's Look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you read it in the ESV, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, you'll find it towards the end there. In all this, you greatly rejoice. As we'll find out, that that greatly rejoices. It's like mega joy. Anybody here want mega joy? Mega joy. That's what it is. Verse 8, you can see it at the end there. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Even the angels get in on the act at the end of verse 12. Even angels long to look into these things. You've got this picture, sort of like, you know, big wall and these little angels, sort of like, the angel, sort of wing things. They're buzzing off this. So how do we get this through? They're going through trials, verse 6. They should be hopeless. Everything's falling apart. Stuff in this world, the rich list stuff, falling apart. But they are buzzing. What are they so thankful and joyful in? Because I need some of that. But let me, let me back up a little bit, just so, so we can think about this a bit more clearly. Um, what do you, forget them, what do you thank God for the loudest? What do you thank God for the loudest? You see, it's possible to thank God for good stuff, which is not the most important thing, isn't it? It's possible to be thankful for stuff that is just not the most important. If you're a parent, you know this. I'm not going to embarrass all six of my daughters this morning. No, I could have picked any which one I wanted. What do you think of daughter number four, who's not in here? Calm down. (laughs) Breathe. It's okay. What do you think daughter number four um, from her wins most praise for me? 
What is it that she is most grateful for in me? What is it that brings her joy and goes, that's my daddy? It's, well, it's quite simple. It's when I, ever I return home carrying sugar-based products. <laughs> did you get it? You did, didn't you? You know Emily. It's whenever I come bringing sugar-based products, sweets, chocolate, cake, her eyes go wide. She sees me holding it and she bursts out in exhausted praise. You're the best dad in the world! Oh! Lord, he's my dad! He brings me stuff that will kill me. Oh! Oh! You see, she rarely thanks me for paying the mortgage. Uh, she rarely uh, thanks me when I lovingly nurture her and pull her back from her sinful little tendency. She rarely thanks me for all the countless times I've wiped her bottom and kept her sanitary. She rarely thanks me for the food and the fact that she's warm every day and got nice clothes. But when she sees the sweeties, yes! And it's not until we see a little bit more clearly... Sometimes that's when we reach adulthood, but there's a plenty of people who reach adulthood who don't see very clearly. But it's usually when we see a bit more clearly, perhaps we become parents ourselves, perhaps we're a little bit older, a little bit wiser, and that is when we begin to realise what is more important. And I sometimes wonder how my mum and dad put up with me. And I've started thanking them for things that I never used to thank them for. I realised that there's other stuff I should be thanking them for. Can I tell you, it's the same with God. Now, for those of you who have ever been to our fellowship group we have on a Thursday night, what do, we, what do we always start? What question? Encourage my heart. What sort of questions do we always start the night with? What are you thankful for this week? Good, what else? What's been going on? Or sometimes it's a mixture of those two things. What has the Lord been up to in your life this week? And I'm going to tell on you all who are in my fellowship group. The general answer to what we feel most comfortable and find it easier to connect the dots with are the sweeties, aren't they? Aren't they? So we'll say, Lord, thank you that um, I've started my diet and I haven't stopped yet. Uh, thank you, Lord, that uh, you managed to deal with that little problem, frustration I had with that person. Thank you, Lord, that I've got a job. Thank you, Lord, that my kids didn't kick off when they might have kicked off. And all of those things are really good and encouraging things, aren't they? They're little blessings of life, and we should be thankful for those. But it's interesting how over time our fellowship group has started thinking a little bit more deeply. As we see people growing up, you start to think, not just thank you for the situations, but the things the Lord is doing in the midst of the situations. That's what it looks like to grow up, is to have a grasp of what God is doing in our life, what is really valuable, what is the most precious. And the answer comes very clearly in this text. This is why we start right here at the beginning of the letter. If last week we said, this is who you are. You are God's chosen, elect, strangers in the world. I've called you to myself to shine for me, to live for me, and I've done this all by my power. If that is who they are, these verses here is what God is doing in the now and in the future with those who he has called. Okay? And the word is summed up when it comes in all three of the paragraphs that are there. It comes at the end of verse 3 to, uh, three to 5. It comes at the end of verses 6 to 9. And it comes at the start of verse 10. Three paragraphs there. I'll read it and see whether you can pick out the thing. Okay, verse, verse 5. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be re- revealed in the last time. See whether you can pick a similar word at the end of verse 9. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the 
salvation of your soul. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the great, please humour me, what is it that Peter says is the most important thing to be praising God for? Salvation! It's not rocket science. That is what it's here. So for the remainder of my time, if time allows, that is, we're going to look at three aspects. Just look there, John, so if you want to go in. Reasonably similar length on each point, so if it looks like I've spent 25 minutes on point two, I'll kill it, and we'll miss out point three. But I'm taking it a bit out of order. If you want to know why, ask me later. I'm not going to tell you now. Three things about this salvation that leaves Peter absolutely buzzing and says to people who are facing trials, to those scattered believers who are facing trials, don't miss this, otherwise you'll be tempted to try and put your hope in stuff that will just, in the end, kill you. So, first one, here we go. Uh, uh, A salvation that was preached in the past. So, verses 10 through to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently and with greatest care. Can you sense the, the seriousness with which they did it? Trying to find out the time and circumstance to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. And what we find here is that you are not the first person to realise that life doesn't always work according to your plan. It doesn't, does it? You're not the first person to figure that one out, neither am I. We're always trying to figure it out, we're trying to make sense. And here we find, but let me back up. Have you had a moment this week when, the law, when, when situations have come upon you and you've been tempted to stand there, or maybe you did, or maybe you just screamed it, or maybe you went down to Hale Park and nobody was around and yelled it, Lord, what on earth are you doing? What is actually happening in planet Earth and in my life? What are you doing? And you can speculate all you like, but by yelling that loudly and trying to figure it out on your own, you ain't going to get anywhere near the answer. Because speculation won't help you. What you need is revelation. Revelation is an unveiling, a making plain from heaven, from outside to us. And in these verses, we, know, we find that the prophets couldn't figure it out on their own. No religious dudes. No guru. No intellectual. No desperate person can figure out what God is doing on, his, on their own. It needs to be revealed, and that's what we find the Bible is. It is a revelation of what God is doing in the world whenever we scream, Lord, what on earth are you doing? So look, verse 10 and 11. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come searched intently with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstance which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. I don't know what misinformation that you've heard about the Bible. Let let us be put straight by these verses. What is the Bible about? The Bible is a story of salvation through a hero. Can I say that again? The Bible is a story of salvation through a hero. I could ask all the teenagers here uh, 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 who talk about this with their mates, and they make them talk about this at all, but when they do, what do they think the Bible is? Uh, it's a book telling to be good. 
No, it's not. It is a book of the salvation of God brought to us through a hero. This is what the heart of what God is doing. If you want to know the answer to that scream in your heart, what on earth are you doing? Answer, always the same. I am working out my salvation plan in the world and in your life. If you turn to me and put your trust in me. That's what the whole Bible is about. Look at it in verse 11. Trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. So who is this salvation plan based on and about? Who? What is the big message of the, uh, of the Bible? Who is it about? Jesus, the Messiah. So you want to know what the Old Testament's about? Scary book, look into it. Very confusing. Answer, Jesus. It's all there to prepare us for his sufferings, his life, his condescending work. Imagine being the second, uh, second member of the Trinity. Come down to this, done. Right here, and immediately he's got enemies everywhere, so much to the point that the whole of his life is lived in the shadow of the cross, and his sufferings are putting up with us, and then going to the cross to pay for our sin and die in our place. What about the glories uh, that are to be revealed beyond that? That's about the resurrection. That's about the spirit coming, the ascension, the future glories of his kingdom coming that is untouchable. That's what the whole of the Old Testament is about. It's about salvation in Jesus through his death and resurrection. That's, if, you read, if you read a bit of the Old Testament and merely take away from it, try hard and do your best, and God gets angry with people who are against him, then you've missed the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is about Jesus. A salvation through a hero. And I wonder whether you picked up how much those, those prophets, they were bouncing around. You can imagine, you know, they kicked the cat out of the, the study, they sit down to write their book, and they go, oh, cool, salvation's coming soon. Come on, come on, come on, who is it, Lord? Who is it, who is it, Lord? Shut up and keep writing. Oh, tell us, Lord, tell us, Lord, who is it? I can't, I can't work, figure out how it's going to work. Is it a suffering and glory? I don't know, oh, that was a, oh, who is it? Shut up and keep Oh, but I can't keep writing. I can't keep writing. But I, 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 oh, tell me, who is it? Shut up and keep writing, because the answer isn't for you. The answer is for those who will come after you, so they won't be able to miss Jesus the Messiah. You notice there's a you in there. Well, this is what Peter says to them. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. That's you and me. That's them who Peter was writing to, and us as well. You, Christians today, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Look, this is Jesus. He wrote and guided prophets in what he would do. Now, I had a great discovery about it. I remember it. Me and Jane had been arguing about it. This was when I was a, I was a, a student. Because I was like, wow, isn't Jesus really clever? He looked in the Bible and said all the things the Messiah should sort of be, and he managed to be it. Isn't that clever? Am I right or am I wrong? I'm totally wrong. Jesus wasn't fulfilling a homework assignment. Now what we're told here is that the Lord Jesus, in advance of him coming, said, Prophets, put these things in. Put these clues in. Put these prophetic words in about what I will be like so that when I arrive people won't miss me I don't fit into the prophecies the prophecies are made to fit me and I was like whoa 
He's really big. He's not just clever. He's the Lord. And that just walloped me. Now I'm just sharing that with you because maybe that wallops you and encourages you, but it encourages me that the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, prepped this because he doesn't want us to miss salvation. And so what are we being told here? We're being told that God, knowing our need, didn't send a theologian, didn't send a philosopher, didn't send a ten-step plan, he came himself. He came to be subject to the evil of this world, he came to put up with our junk, he came as much as sin made... I mean, you lot, that's not fair! Constantly saying that, or, well, if you're a kid, if you, you just think it as an adult. You sniff injustice and ugliness a mile off, just like a shark sniffs blood. You're like, oh, and it just gets you into a frenzy. Imagine if you were the perfect holy son of God. Coming to dwell amongst people. <coughs> oh, he came. He came and gave himself. And this is amazing. If you don't think this is amazing, don't believe me. Believe the angels. Even angels long to look into these things. Can I tell you, it takes a lot to impress an angel. It really does. Angels have seen it all. You know, they are ministering spirits who sit outside of mere physical reality and they see and get it all. They're not easily amazed and impressed. We are. We're easily wowed and amazed by anything. The marketing executives have a great time trying to sell us good news, trying to sell us a gospel. Put your hope in this and your soul will be satisfied. You'll be full of joy. And we like lemon go, yeah, where's my money? We're so easily impressed. You want to know what impresses an angel? coming of the second person of the Trinity to save people like you and me. The angels long. They just sit there pondering. He's at it again. He's saving that one. That one. That's what gets the angels excited. I think that's what we're supposed to get excited about. That he would do that for us. So what's the first great thing here? This salvation was preached in the past so we wouldn't miss it. Imagine what that must have meant to those first century believers who looked around them and there was a whole world order that seemed so self-sufficient it looked as if it had always been there and would always be there. And Peter says, no, 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 no. This one was planned a long time ago and you've been taken up into it. Second, second, let's have a look at this. Second reason why we want to be praising the Lord, why salvation is the thing not sweet is the thing is that it's guaranteed in the future. And this is the whole push of this whole section. Is for Peter, salvation is future. We taste it now, but the, the real goodies are yet to come. Now, I do understand that the suicide rates among men in, in the UK is increasing faster than anywhere else in mainland Europe. Uh, in fact, we've got the, the, the fastest increase of uh, suicide rate amongst men in the world, I believe. I need to check that, but that's what I, I, I believe. Now, it's difficult to say why. It's difficult to know all the reasons for that. Uh, we could all have a good guess. But one thing I found interesting was that the police report, a common theme on the suicide notes that are left behind for people who've taken their own lives. And the phrase that comes up again and again and again, maybe you've even thought this phrase from time to time in your life. I wonder, can anybody guess what it is? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you straight. I have nothing to live for. Hopelessness, isn't it? I have nothing 
to live for. So desperate, isn't it? It's so desperate to have nothing to live for. Now, if hope is the fuel that we need in order to be able to keep going, imagine having nothing to live for. Flip that the opposite way and imagine having everything to live for. That's what we find in these verses. Look. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Hardly containing himself here. Now this is your story, by the way, if you're a believer. The question is, have you connected it? What Peter's doing is saying, look, I want the hope of the future to connect into your present now. So you make sense of your present now, and that's why we're finishing on present at the end. Well, have you made sense of your present now by view of the future? You've got to bring it down into earth. I want to tell you, your future is one thing, a living hope. That's your story if you were a believer. Living hope. Now, I haven't got time to do absolutely everything in here. I can do three sermons on this. I've got to just pick out some of the highlights. So have a look, look down at verse 3 for me. In his great mercy, he has given. In his great mercy, he has given. Can I show you how awkward and surprising this is? I want you to think, and this won't be difficult for some of you, I want you to think about what the one person whose relationship with them is the most difficult. Think of the one person or just think, uh, you might have ten, think of one person for whom relationship with them is most difficult. Each time that person just seems to, oh, well, you know, perhaps they deny you, make a mockery of you, rob you. It's always robbing. When somebody does something to break a relationship, usually they're robbing something from us, they challenge us, they criticise us, they belittle us, to the point where you're like, oh! Can I just ask you a question about that person now? Do you want them to win the lottery? Of course you don't. You want them to get what's coming to them. You want them to get what they deserve. You want them to get what they deserve. Think about how that can often consume you. It's just like, ah, bless them! You don't sit there planning how you can bless them. You sit there planning on how you're going to give that person what they deserve, either by running them down, or by finding something else, or cutting them off. How hard that is just with one person who you find difficult. We want to see them get it. Can I tell you what mercy is? Mercy is withholding from that person what they deserve. That's what mercy is. You don't give them what they deserve. But God's mercy is even more amazing than that. That's why it's called God's great mercy. It's not only does God, not just one person, humanity who turned against him, all people, not just withhold from us what we are deserved, which is punishment, but he takes what we deserve and he bottles it up and he piles it down on himself. That would be enough. But more than that, he gives us everything he deserves, which is grace, joy, generosity, wholeness. That is God's great mercy. 
Do you think that's easy to do? If you do, go and look at the cross. By the way, it changes the way we think about people who have who perhaps we think don't deserve that. Well, you never deserve mercy. That's what, you can't deserve mercy. That's the whole point. You can receive it, but you can't deserve it. And so what God has done in his great mercy, this tells us his character towards us. He does not want to give us what we deserve. He wants us to give us what he deserves. That's his generosity. And he calls that being born again into a new, a new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You get born again. So radical is this great mercy that when it comes into your life, it can only be described as spiritual rebirth. A rebirth from hopelessness and a futile destiny and getting what we deserve into a destiny that can be described only as a living hope. In fact, it's called an inheritance here. My guess is that not many of us in this room have got loads of dough waiting for us uh, when one of our relatives kicked the bucket. But this inheritance is one that is uh, it's by grace. It's like a spiritual trust fund. That's a good way to say it. Okay, and it can't be touched. A spiritual trust fund that is there for us, earned by Jesus, won by Jesus, given to us. And some of us may have in the downturn of our pension plans that we paid into for ages, and we're like, Ray, this is going to secure my future. And then suddenly there's the economic downturn, and no, it's not. My pension's gone south. Ah, what am I going to do? I know a number of friends we've got where we go on holiday. That's happened to them. And they're having to sell simple stuff in the house just so they can put food on the table because their pension has just gone. It was touchable. But here we have an inheritance that is untouchable. Verse 5. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. More on that in a minute. But look at the character of this inheritance. Verse 4. And into an inheritance that can never, never, perish, spoil, or fade. Okay? Now in the ESV it says, it puts sort of um, the negatives in there. It says, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Anybody here ever looked at the prospect of perishing food and thought, yum, I really want to eat that? Oh, I hope not. You'll end up in, well, you'll end up with sort of gastroenteritis, something or other. But imagine... I'm sort of disappointed, isn't it? Because it's, hold on, food, I've got that for me joy, but no, it's perished. It's gone. What about undefiled? Anybody here ever get sick of the fact that sin ruins everything? Sin ruins churches, sin ruins families, sin ruins our hopes and our dreams. Sin, most of all, ruins us. And it is everywhere. We are defiled by it. That attitude of selfishness and self all the time, all the time, it just taints everything. Some of us are so worried about the sin wrecks everything, we're nervous about going out of our houses because it's a dangerous world. There's sinners everywhere and they could hurt me and they probably will. But imagine an inheritance that is undefiled. No trace of sin. Unfading. Everything, we talked about this recently in Revelation, haven't we? Everything fades. Everything disappoints. But imagine an inheritance that every day, rather than fade a little more, gets a little bit more juicy, a little bit more tasty, a little bit more shiny, a little bit more soul-satisfying. That is our inheritance. And the first century believers who were receiving this letter needed to know that. They needed to know it. Because everything else around them was being robbed from them. They were living in a world with plenty of stuff that was, imperish- that was just perishing. They were living in a world like you and me, 
where stuff was defiled, whether it was relationships with people and they were getting hurt through it, whether it was the fact that this world will worship almost anything other than the true and living God, so all the things you're encouraged to put your hope on to some degree are tainted and defiled. Whether it was they were sick and tired of people holding stuff up to put your hope in and it just fading away and being empty. And this is shielded and guaranteed for us, verse 5, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation. It's almost like being in protective custody. Um, I think John needed that a little bit. Can you notice, John, how uh, Matty and Mark just enjoyed that a little bit too much? <laughs> did, didn't they? They did that. And do you know, I wish I was them. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just, yeah, okay. But imagine if we put John in protective custody before when he got over there. What would that mean? It means that he, A, he would be able to escape, and B, he wouldn't be able to be harmed. He'd be like in a secure bubble. God says that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and he set his love upon you, you can't escape that, and people can only touch you so much, because you're secure. He is keeping an inheritance for you, But more than that, he is keeping you for that inheritance. I look after my kids especially well just before Christmas, just so that I can give him the presents I want. I want you to have it! (laughs) Silly example, but you get the idea. He wants you to have this inheritance. And what do we do? Well, we envy the world, don't we? We envy the world, and it's so tempting, isn't it? And we look out there and we see all the people with the airbrushed images and airbrushed family lives and airbrushed um, nice clothes and people wow, you know, I could praise God if I had that stuff. Oh please. It doesn't work like that. Please don't measure God's love by the stuff that you've got, the sweeties. Because as we're going to find out, quite often when the sweeties are being removed it's because he wants you to press deeper. He wants you to experience more of uh, his salvation. So will that mean a shift for you? That's what faith in this passage looks like. Faith is saying, though my my inheritance isn't now, it is living for the promises of God and knowing that I've got this future there, so that will change how I live everything now. And you need that in the moment, don't you? Don't you need to hear about that on Sunday? You need to bring that into your day. So at the start of your day, when you get up and you know that the world's going to come flying at you, and you're like, I'm going to face all kinds of difficulties, trials, Lord, please help me as I go through this day to know that I've got a guaranteed future that cannot be touched Because if I know that, if I really know that in here, when I go into that hostile situation, when I get that disappointing letter come through, when I get that um, uh, rumour of gossip about me, I will be able to stand, because it may hurt, but it can't kill me, because I've got the guaranteed future. That's what faith looks like in real terms for you and me today. So don't you dare say faith is listening on a Sunday morning, taking it in, and then not even thinking about it through the week. You get up in the morning and say, Lord, would you help me to walk by faith this week? This is the bit that wallets me. How can you know? How can you know? And all of this hangs on the proof of the resurrection. In his great mercy, he has given us birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It all changed for Peter at the resurrection. Do you remember? He was a babbling fool. Always having to take his foot out of his mouth. He charged in where angels feared to tread. He hadn't got a clue. But then, the day of the resurrection, everything changed for Peter. 
he believed. Can I tell you that as I read through this this week, I was overwhelmed by the confidence of Peter as the eyewitness to the resurrection. Every word he speaks is on the grounds of the fact that he is an eyewitness evidence and he believes it as surely as you believe that you're sitting on a chair right now. And that is what fires him and that is what shapes him. He clearly is an eyewitness. I wonder if you have doubts. This is the question you need to ask yourself. As you read this, is Peter believable? Do you believe this guy when he says, I saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ? As you scan through this, is he speaking with the authority and with the character of somebody who is an eyewitness and has seen it? Peter clearly believes it. If Peter was here today, you'd stand in there and say, listen, Peter, why do you bet your life on Jesus? Why are you praising God for this hope? And we stand there and we interrogate him and we say, listen, is it because he answered all of your questions about your life, Peter? No, he certainly didn't. There were loads of things I still didn't know. Is it then, Peter, because he he gave you ease in this life? Uh, No. In fact, I had a lot of struggle standing for Jesus. You could argue that my life is made worse in these days because I stood for Jesus. Hold on then, Peter. Is it because he gave me power? No. I died strapped naked upside down to a cross. I didn't have any power in this world. And what is it, Peter? Why is it that you have bet your life on Jesus? Why is it you're praising God for this hope? What would he say? I can't escape the truth of the resurrection. It's true. It's true. It's true. And that's why he's praising, even in his sufferings. He has a guaranteed future. Finally, and much more briefly as we finish, glorious joy in the present. Verse 6 to 9. I've spoken quite a bit. Could somebody loudly and clearly read verses 6 to 9 for us, please? Somebody read that really loudly and clearly as we finish. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proof of genuineness of your faith, a greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Brilliant, thank you. So what is their present reality? What's the words in verse 6 that sum up what, how you would describe the life of these believers as they stand for Jesus in what is modern day Turkey? What's the word in verse 6 or what are the words that describe? Shout out for me please. Suffering, good. What else? Glory, that's to come. That's not what they're facing at the moment. Well spotted with a good Bible word. What are the words that describe their situation? Look at verse 6. Grief and trials, and sometimes testing as well. Okay? What is a grief and a trial? A grief and a trial is where something is taken from you that is a good thing in and of itself. Perhaps it's money. Perhaps people rob you, like poor John. Perhaps it's opportunity. Because of their greed, they get ahead of you and they care nothing for you, they take your opportunity. Perhaps it's your health, when your health gets stolen away from you. Perhaps it's respect. And we all want respect, sometimes we want respect too much, don't we? But when people despise us and, and, and um, pour scorn upon us or run us down, it's taken from us. That's a grief and a trial. 
Perhaps it's relationships. Perhaps when a relationship just dissolves because you can't make it work or because somebody behaves badly in it. Perhaps it's a grief comes on when you get justice taken away and you feel it deep within you. And the Bible's wonderfully honest because the Bible tells us God is not unaware of these things. He knows about them and he's happy to call them griefs and trials. We're not those who sort of say, smile, Jesus loves you. No, no, we feel it deeply. As did those believers. They felt it deeply in the midst of their life. And yet, it's a bit of a mix-up here because there's this word joy mixed in with that. But before we explain why, we need to just think for a second. I'm just... These three words here, uh, grief, trial, testing, um, have any of you sat at home this week saying, Lord, I need to ask you something. Uh, these three things I haven't really got a lot of in my life. Uh, I'd like to fix that, please. Uh, Lord, um, I think my life's a little bit too easy at the moment. I'm finding this struggle with sin isn't really a struggle. It's quite a doddle, actually. Um, I, 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 you know taken abuse from people, let's bring it on, you know. Um, you know, I, I don't find it particularly difficult to stand against the pressures of this world, to conform to the, the valued gods of this age. Oh, Lord, Lord, please send in the trial, send in the struggle. Anybody pray that? We don't, do we? We don't ask for that, do we? And I think you'd be nuts if you did. And that's why it's so shocking that Peter is rejoicing in the middle of them. Now, some of you don't think that's possible. He's got a joy that this world knows nothing about because some of us will think you can't have joy through your circumstances if your circumstances aren't right. No, that happiness, happy, I think something that happens, happiness, as I've told you countless times, can be robbed from you in a second because it's based on your, what is happening in your life at the moment. So you're happy as Larry, you walk down the street, twist your ankle, gone that happiness. You're walking down the street and somebody chops a rock at your head and you're in hospital. Gone is the happiness. On you go on and on and on and on and on. But this joy is through the middle of bad happenings. It's interesting, isn't it? So often when we lose our happiness, it just reveals to us a little bit about what we possibly love too much. So whenever you're losing your happiness, what you need to do is say, Lord, would you help me to understand what's going on in my heart? Or put people around me who will help me understand what I'm putting my hope in. But here, trials are bad, but they create joy. They reveal in you that because of your salvation, hurts can only hurt you so deep in this life. Now look at the illustration here. It's quite shocking, really. Uh, but I like it because I did material science when I studied at university, and it's all about boiling metal. Uh, and that's what it is. This is material science stuff. So he's talking here about, you see, these have come, so the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold... There's the metal, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Okay? So you go mine a metal, like gold or stuff like that, and in the midst of it, there are imperfections and impurities. So what you do is you take that sort of ore, that sort of base metal, and you, well, you're boiling. What you do is you take that stuff, because those imperfections um, and impurities in there, they damage the strength, they remove the beauty and they remove the usefulness. So what you do is you take that mix, bung it in, turn up the heat, whoosh, start to heat it, and what happens to the impurities? It gets burned off. So now, what was rather ugly, rather weak, and rather useless becomes beautiful, strong, 
and incredibly useful. When you scream, Lord, what are you doing? One of the answers that must come straight to your head amongst others is this. He's boiling you. Because he loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. It's very humbling that, isn't it? He knows how stubborn we are. He knows how tightly held our self-righteousness is. He knows how much we love things that are perishing and we give ourselves to them. He knows how committed we are to the building of our kingdom and not his. He doesn't want us wasting our life. He knows how quickly we blame shift and need to be taught that it's our sin that's the problem. And so, what are you praising the Lord for today as we look at this? Are you praising him for the sweeties? And listen, thank him for the sweeties. But as you grow, you'll realise that there is something so much more valuable, so much more important, so much more eternal, so much more soul-satisfying, so much more joy-inducing than sweeties, verse 9. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So what have we started doing in our fellowship group more? I've noticed this. We've started saying, look, I've been in the midst of this, but the Lord has been helping me to see that. I've had this going on, but, I, but oh, would you pray for me because my heart wants to do this. Would you help me to obey Jesus do you see the difference? Do you see the maturity there? We're saying, Lord, give us situations, but in the midst of those, we're interacting with them, and he wants us to live out our salvation in the midst of our situation. So in a minute, we're going to have a time to pray. We're going to sing two songs in a minute that are about the Lord's salvation, and in between them, there's going to be a time of open prayer. Now, for those of you who've got a piece of paper, you've just got a few minutes quickly to doodle things that you could pray. If you want to pray them now, out loud, that's a blessing to everybody, and we'll all say a hearty amen. But it could be that you just want to pray them quietly in your heart. Perhaps you need to go back and say, Lord, I'm really sorry that I'm so shallow. Help me to praise you most for your salvation. Lord, thank you, thank you, that you kept the real priority and, and proclaimed the salvation. Thank you, Lord, that I have an inheritance that can't be touched. Even I can't screw it up, Lord. I screw everything else up. Thank you that even I can't screw that one up. Lord, help me this week to bring that future reality into every situation that I go to and face. Help me with that, Lord. Lord, forgive me for the fact that I put too much hope in stuff here rather than in you. Lord, help me not to be ashamed to stand out and stand up for you. There are loads of prayers, example prayers, and you've probably got personal ones yourself, and it's encouraging to see some of you doodling them down now. It's a really... It's a really worthwhile thing to do. But now what we're going to do is we're going to stand together. We're going to sing. So Bethany, I'll need you up. Uh, Mary and Kayla, I'll need you up. We're going to stand and sing a song. And then there's going to be a time to pray openly. And then we'll sing another song to finish with.